the sheikh summons one of his staff to bring his speedboat and he rocks up in this three outboards they were all like johnson what uh, 150s and he shows up in this speedboat and we just go in a straight line out to the ocean for 20 kilometers and in the distance there's an oil rig an oil rig being pulled by two tugboats and i'm like the condensed version of it is the falcon sitting on the oil rig Hey, welcome back, everyone, for another episode of the Falconry Told Podcast. Thanks, as always, for joining us for a new episode and the start of a new series. We'll get into that in a moment, but before we get started, I have to give a quick shout-out to the continued supporters of the podcast, being Bobby Augercrafts out of Poland. If you haven't had a chance to yet or haven't heard me talk about his really nice, high-quality handcrafted equipment, Hit him up at Bobby Agagoshawk on Instagram, or you can get his contact information from our website at falconrytold.com. It's well worth your time, effort, and energy and monetary investment to try out some of his really high-end anklets or hybrid jesses, whatever suits your fancy. You won't be disappointed if you give it a shot. It's really great stuff. I also want to give a quick shout out to Seth Roy from North Mountain Goshawks, who's a new supporter of the podcast. And if you're in the market for a new goshawk or particularly maybe a parent rear goshawk for the next upcoming season, don't hesitate to get a hold of him at northmountaingoshawks.com and fill out the form there or send him a message on Facebook, see what your options potentially are and get on the list. They usually fill up pretty quickly. So if uh, you're going to be in the market for a new goshawk for the next hunting season, definitely hit him up and um, don't hesitate to get on the list. Everybody that I've ever talked to that's ever flown one of his high quality game hawks that he's produced in the past has always been pretty satisfied and I don't have any doubt that you will be too. So uh, get on the list, hit him up and uh, tell him we sent you. Okay, so before we launch into this new episode and series, I just want to start off by saying that we know that a lot of people over the last few years have been bummed that we haven't been able to try and put something together for our neighbors to the north. And you all know how vast and wide and huge and spread out Canada is. And aside from attending a meet here and there, which of course, you know, would take a decent amount of funding as well. Um, you know, it's just really hard to try and put together a series for a country that's just so big and sparse is Canada. So I just kind of became resigned to the fact that at least for this first series, we're just going to have to pretty much do most of these episodes remotely. I, I've done my best to make it as best to quality as possible for you all. Um, all that being said, I have to give a special thank you to our guest for this podcast, Mark Williams, for helping to kind of coordinate people and, and contact people up in Canada and try and get some people together for a short introductory series for Canada. As I said, this is all done remotely, so hopefully in the future we'll be able to swing some way to be able to attend a meet up in Canada and maybe try and get some more people, uh, you know, as, as a part of maybe a part two or something and do more in-person ones for another series for Canada. But all that being said, I've done my best to try and finally bring you all a series that represents our neighbors to the north. Hopefully you all will uh, be happy with it, and it'll at least kind of tide you over for now. Really wish I could have done something sooner, but hey, it is what it is. We're doing it now. So 
At any rate, uh, back to Mark Williams. So Mark is also the communications director and NAFA trustee for the Falconry Fund as well. And for those of you that aren't aware, I also wanted to let you know on Mark's behalf that the Falconry Fund is doing actually really cool sweepstakes at the moment. And um, if you aren't aware of it, if you donate 25 bucks to the Falconry Fund, you can be entered into a sweepstakes to actually win a commission painting from Andrew Ellis. And it's a really good value if you were to win. And the cool thing too is also that the uh, donations are also tax deductible too. So you can get a, a tax credit for donating and entering that sweepstakes as well. So if uh, you haven't had a chance to check out the uh, information about that sweepstakes, just head to falconryfund.org and you can find out more information. But Mark is a really cool guy. He's done a lot of different stuff over the the years that he's practiced falconry and he's originally British by birth, immigrated to Canada and then actually ended up living in the Middle East for a while as well. But you'll hear all about that here in the episode and I'm just going to go ahead and turn things over to that conversation so you can hear all the different wealth of experiences that Mark's had in his life. So anyway, I will go ahead and turn things over to this conversation with Mark Williams to start off this Canada series. Here we go. I want to go ahead and start off by saying thank you very, very much for helping me kind of organize this and put this together somewhat. It's been a kind of a long time in the making, and I know that a lot of the people that listen to the podcast have kind of been wanting a series kind of featuring some falconers from Canada. And like I said, it's been kind of a challenge getting it put together, and I wasn't really sure how to go about it at first. But with your uh, with your help and kind of some brainstorming, uh, able to kind of hopefully get this put together and out there for everyone. So thank you again for that. You're welcome, Jonathan. I'm glad to help you. It's a great uh, it's a great podcast. I enjoy listening to the show, and um, I'm, I'm honored to be asked to come on. And certainly, I'm glad to help you with finding some. Um, material to speak to uh, some Canadian falconers. We have a, a great bunch of Canadian falcon, falconers uh, across the country, and it's, it's a big country at that, but um, there's a lot of people that uh, that certainly it, it would be good to hear their voice, and I've given you some names to start with, so good luck with that. <laughs> well, like I said, I appreciate it, and it's definitely a good start. I think we'll, um, I think we'll, we'll get somewhere with it. And I think with the names that you give me, it'll kind of be at least a good start for a lot of, uh, yeah, I mean, hopefully it'll be a good representation of, of kind of what Canada has to offer. And, um, and from the sound of it, from the people that you've kind of told me about, there's going to be some, uh, some good stuff in there. So good. I hope so. Yeah. And I know when we were brainstorming, trying to get this together, I mean, I was trying to look at every avenue possible to figure out how to do some of these in person and and who knows maybe down the road i'll be able to uh maybe by attending some meets up there or something i don't know but but yeah i mean it's <laughs> it's kind of like you know doing doing a series for for this would be very difficult logistically all in person and so that's kind of why we we settled with just having to do this uh, remotely and and like I said, hopefully everybody will enjoy it. I'm, I'm sure they will. To follow on that, um, Canada is what, the second or third largest continent in the world. And um, 
you know, it sometimes takes almost as long to fly from the West Coast to the East Coast as it does to go to, say, the UK, um, because, of course, they go over the uh, the polar um, route. But um, it's a big country, and it's a very different uh, geographical uh, terrain across all the provinces and territories. Um, it's. I think there's something like nine provinces and two territories, and forgive my uh, my guessing on that, but um, it's not practiced in every province either uh, or territory. In fact, British Columbia, uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and I'm going west to east, um, Manitoba, um, Ontario, Quebec, uh, and then you have the eastern maritime provinces. Um, I think the longest established club is in Saskatchewan with just over 50 years since its inception. Um, and then uh, Alberta and uh, British Columbia, there's only literally less than a handful of falconers in Manitoba, if that. Um, <clears throat> but Ontario features probably the largest contingent of uh, falconers. Hmm. Um, and the Ontario Hawking Club is... Uh, is the biggest club and a very good club at that with some great falconers there. Um, but falconry is provincially regulated, so it'll be different in, in every province. Um, Alberta, Saskatchewan, you have to go through an apprenticeship program. Uh, in Alberta specifically, it's legislated as such. Not anybody can have a bird, like I think is the case in, say, Ontario and potentially British Columbia, I think. Um, you have to go through an apprenticeship program. And, and in Alberta, it's probably the most restrictive, if you want to use that word, than uh, any of the provinces and, frankly, anywhere where regulated falconry exists, and I'm talking globally. In order to be a falconer in Alberta, you actually need to be a member of one or two falconry, recognized falconry clubs, um, which is different. <laughs> um, you know, as a bow hunter or an, a falconer, or sorry, I should say a, a fisherman or a, a gun hunter, you don't have to belong to a club in order to practice your sport, but in Alberta you do. And part of the reason is because they want to maintain the apprenticeship program, uh, which is very much modeled after the North American uh, uh, apprenticeship program you, you have in the U.S., I should say. Uh -huh. um, but anyway, it is quite different. And uh, I think it's generally considered the best provinces to fly a falcon would be Alberta, Saskatchewan, and perhaps Manitoba. Um, vast open terrain with... Uh, Lots of uh, game in good years, anyway. Uh, grouse, partridge, pheasants, ducks. Uh, Ontario, British Columbia, to a greater extent, uh, and I don't know much about the eastern provinces because very few of them actually have regulated falconry. Um, they fly mostly short wings, and they hunt uh, various ground game and uh, and maybe quail and so on. So, yeah, it would be very difficult for you to go and get a picture of everything because it's so vastly, uh, you know, different. Of course, um, yeah. But in the provinces, we used to have uh, a Canadian meet that was held historically in Saskatchewan because it's somewhere in the middle of the country. 
Um, that being said, it's still a 24-hour drive, 30-hour drive for some Ontario Falconers in Quebec. But um, it, it, it's not – they haven't had a, a – she said – Canadian meat in several years, and we should get back to doing that because it's a great opportunity for falconers all over Canada. And of course, we get visitors from Europe. I've had people come visit, and I take them to the meet, and from the USA to uh, to attend our meets. Um, and they are they are superb. They're great fun. Everybody's it's it's a much more uh, relaxed. Um, it's semi-structured, but it's a much more relaxed uh, meet. Everybody gets to fly birds at game. There's lots of it. Um, so hopefully one day we'll get back to those Canadian meets. It's challenging enough to just do state to state here in the U.S., let alone you know province to province in a in a country like Canada. Like you said, whenever everything's just so sparsely populated and everything's so different you know it's one thing you know with each state having its own regulations and stuff i and you know like i said it's <laughs> yeah it's challenging but yeah i mean like i said i'm i'm glad though that we figured out a way to do this and like i said i i know that uh you know I mean, how many years did you say that you had been in canada now well, I emigrated from the UK in 1991. Okay. So 32 years or so. Yeah. Uh, pretty, pretty sizable amount of time, in other words. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's half my life. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, just kind of going back to your roots, I mean, how has falconry differed for you, like starting off? Because, I mean, I know you're originally from the UK. And yeah. I mean, how has it differed for you? Like how big of a change was it? And I know we'll, we'll get into the different facets of some of your other life experiences here in a bit, but like, I mean, just kind of as far as comparing the UK to, to falconry in Canada, I mean, how much of adjustment has that been for you over all these years? Well, that's a great question. And, um, I'll, I'll give you my perspective. Um, I've, I first, reached out to actually a NAFA member way back in the 80s. Uh, his name is Dale Gathormson, and he's been a good friend ever since. In fact, we still speak weekly. Um, I, I saw in a NAFA uh, publication, I found his name, and he was in Saskatchewan. And Saskatchewan was a province we had considered moving to. And I wrote to him. In fact, I still have a copy of the response he sent me that's firmly between one of my um, early falconry books that I'd bought. And he goes on to describe falconry in Canada. And when I finished reading that letter, I was fit to pack a suitcase and go. And uh, it, it took us several years to actually make that move. But uh, essentially, I came to Canada for the falconry. And uh, my wife and then three-year-old daughter uh, obviously followed, joined me. Um, and um, when I first arrived, I remember in Saskatchewan, if you ever get to go there, it's pretty flat. And in, in most of the province, well, certainly the southern part of the province, there isn't any trees. And it was March 15th in uh, 1991. It was about 15 below and covered in deep snow. And we got off the plane. We'd never come here, before, well, to Saskatchewan before. 
And I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, what have I done? You know, it was like <laughs> arriving on the moon. And, um, and I had two dogs, two hunting dogs, uh, six suitcases, and my daughter and my wife. And uh, it was a huge, huge step an adjustment, as emigration for anybody is, is a, a huge thing. Um, however, I reached out to Dale once I had my boots on the ground, so to speak, and um, we, I found a house. My wife's job, actually, she's an occupational therapist, got us into Canada. And then once we were in Canada, my career sort of took us around to various provinces. The provinces I chose, however, were provinces I was looking to best practice my sport. So um, I remember my first year in, in Canada, in Saskatchewan, in 1991, and uh, Dale Thompson helped me by taking me to an irie, and I rappelled for the first time uh, down a cliff and took an Ayers Prairie Falcon. And in hindsight, that was perhaps not the best thing to do, <laughs> but uh, because I knew very little about imprinting. Uh, at that point. And um, anyway, I took this prairie falcon and I raised it and trained it and I hunt and, and I started hunting with it. And in the UK for 15 years prior in my, my falconry career, I'd flown pretty much exclusively shore wings. Um, goshawks, mostly passage goshawks imported from Hungary and Germany that we could afford you know, for the price, I think it was about 350 UK pounds back then. And the deal was you fly it for two years and you give it back to the club, which in my case was the Welsh Hawking Club. And they give you 200 pounds back, I think. And so you have the pleasure of flying it and then it goes back to the club and they put it into a breeding project back in the day. Anyway, so when I arrived in Canada, I got this prairie falcon and um. And I, I thought, well, when I come, I'm going to switch cold to flying long wings. I'd flown goshawks, a couple of European sparrowhawks, even a male Harris hawk, but um, I'd not flown long wings. And so I remember driving around and there's ducks everywhere. There's partridge everywhere, which for any falconer in the UK is novel. And uh, flying a long wing in the UK is virtually impossible, certainly at that stage in my life where I had very little money. And uh, I couldn't afford to buy partridge or, or pheasant poults put down on a, on a lease of land like some people do and then uh, curtail the predators and stuff like that and protect that shoot so you can go there and then hunt these birds with your hawk. I couldn't afford to do that. I got my permission by simply going to landowners and uh, asking permission to hunt rabbits back in the UK. Mm -hmm. And uh, with the understanding, certainly on some of the big keeper estates, which are large uh, tracts of land that are owned by a landowner that employs a gamekeeper. And um, I would ap appeal to their uh, generosity and get permission to hunt on their land. And everybody doesn't mind you getting ra rid of rabbits. But in the eventuality that my goshawk might have caught a, a pheasant, obviously that's money for them. That's revenue because they are being charging people to shoot them and um, on driven shoots. So I'd pay them five pounds back in those days, which was a fair amount of money um, for every one that I caught or at least every one that I admitted to catching. Every now and again, I would 
I would give the the the, the gamekeeper five pounds just to show uh, that that you know I was trying to comply. But um, anyway, back fast forward to to Canada. I remember going and seeing some partridge on on some guy's land, and I go up to the farmhouse and I knock on the door. And I said, uh, hi, um, I'm a falconer, and I, and I see some partridge on your land. I'd like to be able to hunt them with my falcon. And uh, can I have your permission? And he looks at me, and, of course, it's like I just come off the, another planet. <laughs> he's looking at me, and he's trying to size it all up. But I think part of it was he was trying to understand my accent at that time. And also, he's a, a falcon. You know, like this was completely foreign to these people and they'd not seen or heard of it really. As, to this day, it's still in very much like that. And he goes, well, yeah, go on. He says, why are you asking permission? No one else does. And I said, okay then, so I can go hunt them. And he's like, yeah, absolutely. Knock your head, you know, go ahead. So I found that to be the sentiment from pretty much every single landowner I ever met uh, since. They're like, yeah, whatever, go ahead. Now, for a guy coming from the UK, landing in, in a country, fortunately, speaks the same language, although they tend to end every sentence with A, E-H, A, <laughs> nice day, A, um, is uh, you, you get to go and, and take a bird from the wild. You can go and hunt game, and uh, it was just an incredible experience, so it didn't take that much of an adjustment, um, but I was like a kid in a candy store. And, um, you know, I've never looked back, frankly. It's been an amazing, incredible experience. And I'd like to think that my family, we since had a son when we were in Canada, uh, my family had benefited greatly too, other than just my falconry career. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I, you know, I mean, because I'm, like you, you know, the UK and a large part of the US, depending on which state you're in, of course, as you know, is very, you know, land centric as far as getting permission. And especially mm -hmm. in, in some states, uh, they'd rather just go ahead and shoot you first and ask questions later <laughs> and depending on where you're at. But that's, yeah. that's crazy. So, I mean, as far as, you know, the whole asking permission thing in the other, provinces that you've lived i mean you, i know you said it was kind of like that most so so it's like that in a lot of the the provinces you were at pretty much all across you know the different places that you well, live in canada or i've only walked and lived in saskatchewan alberta and british columbia and i would say the most generous and affable people are definitely in saskatchewan uh and it's probably the least populated province um Back in when I emigrated, there was only 900,000 people in that province. And that province can contain the UK, the United Kingdom, three and a half times. And, and there's 60-something million people in the UK. So when you imagine a land mass as big as Saskatchewan that can fit you know, the United Kingdom into it three and a half times with only 900,000 people, quite often you'd be driving down a highway and 50 yards the other way of that freeway is a car coming down there and he sees you and he waves and i'm like i don't know that guy who is he but he's just waving because he's seeing a fellow human you know what i mean <laughs> yeah it's it's still a bit like that in saskatchewan but alberta is very good british columbia um i did have 
some resistance because a lot of the people that owned there wasn't vast tracts of lands and I, back then those days it was most mostly duck hunting that i was getting there but it's incredibly uh forested and wooded areas it's not great for flying a falcon to be honest and i re i met some resistance because a lot of those small holding owners were were largely city folk that have bought a place in the country and they just weren't of the same uh it's a different culture mm -hmm. so as far as they're concerned that's my backyard no you can't kill my ducks even though the ducks don't belong to them mm -hmm. and and i should just mention by the way that in in alberta in particular but the same with pretty much mo many of the provinces in alberta for sure um the game belongs to the people and this is going to be different to to that of say the us as well definitely the uk but the game belongs to the people so um the landowner obviously owns the land and he has the right to give or decline permission to go on there but the game does not belong to the landowner like it does in other jurisdictions so it's actually illegal for a landowner to charge you to hunt on his land in alberta that you can't do it um but fortunately the vast majority, like 95%, are more than happy to give you permission to hunt, particularly with a falcon, because, you know, they're more concerned about livestock. Um, you know, you get some weekend warrior with a rifle trying to shoot a deer or a moose, and um, they're not necessarily, um, they don't know them, and they feel a little bit vulnerable, particularly closer to large metropolises like uh, a big city. Uh, but with a falcon, I can't think on one hand, definitely, on, on one hand, in in all the years I've lived in Alberta, I can think of people that have, you know, declined my uh, request. Hmm. You know, 99.8% of them will say, yeah, sure, go on. And so what I make a point of doing is, is, is obviously showing them respect and thanking them and, for, for their generosity. And um, at, at Christmas, I'll, I'll maybe give them uh, a bottle of wine or some deer sausage I had made from, from deer or moose or antelope that I hunt with my bow or rifle, just to show that I appreciate their generosity. And, and a lot of these landowners have vast tracts of lands, certainly in the area where I live. I have probably access to 60,000 acres, and it doesn't cost me a dime. Uh, and I, unlike the States, I'm also able to drive on that land, you know, weather permitting. Um, so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty much falconry nirvana here. If it were not for the, uh, the cold winters. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, it sounds incredible, except for that little asterisk mark, which, you know, I'm, as I've seen in many times in your, uh, Instagram feeds that, uh, yeah, there's a lot of snow, a lot of cold up there. <laughs> oh for sure this last year was particularly bad but we needed the precipitation uh it's just that it came suddenly and then we had high winds so the the snow was drifted which when you're trying to drive fields is uh is hazardous um you you may not see a ditch or a, a hole and if you get high centered out there in the middle of you know hundreds of acres there's no tow truck going to come off the road mm -hmm. and 
you know, you don't want to go to the landowner and say, excuse me, can you start up your tractor that you parked three months ago and um, come and pull me out? So it really hurt us last year. I had to end my season quite sort of early. Uh, our season, incidentally, goes from August 15th on Upland through to March 31st. And uh, we have to follow the, the the limits of gun hunters in terms of daily take, but we start our season much earlier uh, for, for upland birds, uh, August 15th, and then September, first week of September, duck season starts. And as you probably are aware, in North America, we have, I think, 107 days of migratory game bird hunting. Um, in some states, they split it. But in Canada, and certainly on the prairies, it's uh, it's maybe allotted about 107 days, but but you only get to hunt pretty much from first week of September to the end of October, maybe if you're lucky, the first week of November. After that, all the water freezes up and they all go south. And uh, there's a few that may winter here, um, but, but, but virtually everything migrates. And all that we have left are the game birds like partridge or grouse and some pheasants, although they don't tend to survive the winters as well. Um, and uh, and that's about it, you know, everything. All the songbirds, passeries, everything goes south. We have some magpies and crows, ravens, no crows, they're gone too. Um, the winters are pretty severe, so... Uh, and peregrines, they go south too. Everything goes south except prairie falcons, and deer falcons move south to us from the Arctic um, and Alaska and so on. So we see them uh, about the time the ducks start moving south. They usually follow the food source down, but they hang around here uh, until about end of February, early March, and then they go back north. Gotcha. So, yeah. Well, that's. That sounds, like I said, it sounds incredible. I, I have one question, though, for you. Out of curiosity, I know you mentioned, you know, like the the province that, for example, where the wildlife belongs to the people and yep. so, so on and so forth. How are the hunting regulations? Are they are they the same in those areas or do you still have to pay for hunting licenses and stuff then? Or Great how, question. How does Great that question. work? And, and that's partly why we have so much abundance uh, of game is because um, the the game is regulated, of course. You, you, you couldn't have a situation whereby uh, hunters just go out and shoot all the deer. Um, mm -hmm. So with a white-tailed deer, for example, uh, everybody, there's a general tag for a, for a buck. And so you just buy the tag, whatever it is, 30 bucks, and uh, you get permission to go hunt one within a designated period of that season, which for firearms is like November 1st to November 30th. Mm -hmm. With game birds um, and migratory game birds, you buy the permit. The tag is only like – the license is only like, from memory, $15 for for uh, a waterfowl license so to speak and there is a um, upland game license for grouse and partridge and then there's a separate one for pheasants mm -hmm. but for falconers the season literally runs from august 15th to the end of march there's no gun hunters it's a different kettle of fish they have set dates of which um 
you know, they're usually four to six weeks in total. Mm-hmm. But um, so you're allowed to have a daily limit of how many of those um, animals or birds that you can hunt a day. They're far exceeding anything a falcon is likely to ever catch. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, and, and that's how it's regulated, basically. If it, if it f- for big game species, there are draw systems in place. So if I wanted to hunt moose, for example, depending on the area in my province that I want to hunt, some are, are more remote and therefore more opportunities, but uh there's a limited amount of uh tags sold and so therefore it's on a draw system so you may have two three thousand hunters want to shoot moose but there may be only one thousand tags allocated for conservation reasons and these these game populations are done by the biologists to ascertain populations in regions the whole province as is the case in most provinces is uh, allotted and chopped up into regions. They call them wildlife management units. Hmm. And so in the case of I want to hunt big game, uh, a wildlife management unit may have 200 tags, but they may have a thousand people apply. So if you don't get it the first year, you go and put in for the next year, but you go up in priority. And then if you don't get it the second year, you go up in priority for the third. But some species, for example, antelope, I've been waiting 12 years to hunt. <laughs> and then, of course, you finally get the tag, and you sure as heck better get landowner permission and find them. Otherwise, you're going to wait another 12 years before you get that chance. <laughs> but, um, but for falconry, it's, 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 there's no draw system. It's simply pay for the tag and, or the license, and uh, you know, off you go. Perfect. Yeah, no, like I said, I'm sure we could. I, I was curious about that, but I'm like I said, it sounds like there's some similarities and and some differences between our you know two countries. But I mean, we could probably go on about that for a while. But I want to go ahead and, and transition to like as far as your personal falconry. And oh, starting off in the UK, how young were you, and when did you initially get into all this, and and kind of what got you interested in it all in the first place? Oh, that's a, a, another great question. Um, I had I had no family influence. I can assure you of that. <laughs> I think if I really look back and soul search, I was probably in my early teens. I've always had a fascination and, 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 and love of wildlife, period. I've just, since I was a kid, since I could probably walk, I've had this fascination with wildlife. And then as I grew up into a young boy and uh, I started getting into fishing. And then I saw an article once in a, in a local newspaper, uh, a guy had a, uh, a sparrowhawk and they did a feature on, on him. And um, it said where he lived, not the, not the, not his address, but the, the 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 district. So I get what we had back in those days, a thing called the Yellow Pages, which was a big phone book, and it had people's names, address, and phone number in them. So I looked at his name, I looked at his place, and I phoned him up and said, "Hey, my name's Mark. I want to get into falconry." And um, I, I saw, I was recommended. I uh, 
to contact you by a, a friend. Because most falconers are very uh, apprehensive and, you know, they're, they don't want to they, – they get a lot of time wasters and so on. Anyway, I met this guy and I got my first Kestrel. And uh, I must have been about 15 or 16. And um, I had no idea what I was doing. I had just got books from the library. I'd read them for two years prior to getting a bird. And I I got the gist of it and weight management and so on. But I had no sponsor, no supervisor. And this guy, as I was to later find out, wasn't particularly a, a, an outstanding or upstanding falconer. Um, but I had fun with that Kestrel. I flew it for two years. And then, of course, that was pre-telemetry even. I'm dating myself now. Um, <laughs> And uh, and after about two years, I lost it in a big big storm. And so my next bird was a, a common buzzard, which is like a very slack metal, uh, docile version of a red tail, but about the same size. Mm -hmm. And uh, I caught a, a, a few sort of incidentals with it, and I was enjoying life. And then I moved from the town that I was living in, Bournemouth, in uh, the south coast of England, to uh cardiff where i was born originally in south wales and then i joined the welsh hawking club and that's when things started to change and i remember i bought a, a european sparrowhawk and uh it coincided with a time when i was only about 20 that i bought my first house and uh i i had this european sparrowhawk that i kept in the shed in the garden and uh, I was single, and um, I didn't have a car. I couldn't afford a car or anything like that. And I lived near a cemetery. And I used to hop the wall of the cemetery and go hunting blackbirds in the cemetery with this European sparrowhawk. <laughs> and, of course, those things are absolute uh, killing machines. And, and that's when the, 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 should we say, this aha moment came. It wasn't just a question of having a bird of prey that you can release and fly and have come back to you. Suddenly, we started killing stuff, you know, starlings and blackbirds and so on. And that's, I think, when when things got serious and it really began to set in with me. And, um, you know, I look back and I cringe at some poor widow bent over a grave, tending her husband's grave, and this blackbird is like twittering, flying into a bush next to her, and the sparrowhawk's right behind it and goes into a bush, and, and I'm come trundling along trying to recover both. It was a bit insensitive at the time, but it was all I could do. And then one thing led to another. I got a goshawk, and, and, and I met other falconers, and then basically I remember – for seven years in a row, we'd make this annual pilgrimage to uh, the very north east of Scotland in uh, Caithness. And I would hunt rabbits and uh, hares, and I even tried red grouse with a gossel, which I failed miserably at. Um, and uh, I had a great time, and that I continued to do right up until I emigrated in 1991. And then when I came to Canada, well, that's when things got into the big league for me. Um, I really began to learn a lot. And like I said to you before, I was like a kid in a candy store. It was just <laughs> unbelievable. The access, the abundance of game, the ease of access to it. 
And uh, my falconry never looked back. You know, I, I, if anything, it's controlled my life, really. My career, the jobs I choose, the, the promotions I've declined because they would take more time away from my, my sport. Uh, and yet I managed to provide for my family. And, uh, and yeah, that's kind of how I got into it and how it sort of unfolded. Now, that's very, very cool. And I know, <laughs> like I said, I think we've all had those those strange moments that we kind of look back and it's like, yeah, that's kind of uh, <laughs> as far as, you know, you, we, we all you kind cringe. of have. Yeah, we, we all kind of have our our um, Mark Williams Cemetery type story, you know, to some degree. There's always at least one of those strange things that that happens randomly at some point in time. But well, uh, I, I remember even as a kid, I mean when I had my gossel, I'd be on a public bus going from one place to another with this <laughs> gossel, which wasn't hooded, I might add, you know, and it, it, it could slice across the floor. And I mean, it's, I wouldn't dream. In fact, I hate being in public places with a Raptor now, but, <laughs> but the idea of getting on a public bus, you know, somebody gets on with an umbrella and this kid gets on with a gossel. It's like, where was my head at the time? But that was all I had to do to get around. You know? Yeah, well, that that's exactly where your head was at the time. Your your head was was in and into it, and that's all there was to it for you. So that explains yeah. a lot. Yeah, you know, you're you're laser focused as a as a kid anyway. You know, there's there's very few yeah. other things than in the present and the now when you're a kid, and and so I mean, it's understandable, but it's hilarious too at the same time. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, speaking of the whole career thing, though. I know in other conversations that we've had, I mean, your life has taken a lot of very diverse turns and I I find a lot of them to be interesting. And I mean, you're pretty well versed as far as just having different experiences and have been fortunate enough, as you told me before, to be able to kind of live in not just, you know, like uh, the UK and, and Canada, but also the Middle East as well, doing things over there is, is a partial career choice and stuff too. Can you kind of go into that some and, and kind of talk about some of your experiences over there and, and just kind of your overall impression and experience about the time that, that you had over in that part of the world too? Uh, sure, Jonathan. Um, well, along with my, um, my falconry kind of experience, I mean, uh, my passion you know, I think everybody's the same. You have this thirst for knowledge. You want to learn more and know more. And long before I went to the Middle East, um, I visited friends. We, 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 we meet these circle of friends uh, through, being, I, you know, being members of organizations such as NAFA. Um, and uh, falconry is a very small world, really, and it's a small family. And, and I'd find myself going to South Africa a couple of, well, several times in experiencing their falconry. And I got to say, <laughs> there's a very high standard of falconry in South Africa. And some of the areas where they're hunting sand grouse and, and some of the Franklin, it's, it's pretty impressive. And then, of course, to watch these black spars go after Franklin, and, and there's there's tremendous falconry there. And through then my time, I've, I've been to other European countries, uh, Austria, I was invited to a meet there for the Eagles. Um, 
And I've been to France and Germany and oh, probably some other places. I can't remember, to be honest. But um, the most significant thing was, I guess, when I was approached by a world-leading radio telemetry manufacturer <laughs> to, to go and represent them in the Middle East. And that came about kind of strangely. I remember uh, being approached by the company. I had been friends with them and the owner because um, back in the day, and I'm going back maybe 17, 18 years ago or more, um, I showed them a, a, a different way of mounting radio telemetry because uh, I had been flying a hybrid and it wasn't their brand of transmitter and I won't embarrass the manufacturer whose it was, but the transmitter failed. It was a fresh batteries, two batteries I put in it at the time and, and the transmitter failed and I was at a field meet and we recovered that Falcon after several hours of searching and by a, a great deal of luck, which you tend to create yourself through persistence. But I thought, I've got to put a second transmitter on this bird. And I had historically always tail mounted. And I'm digressing a little bit, but uh, I didn't like putting stuff on the feet. And so I was in touch and contact with some biologists who were also linked with the recovery of the peregrine in Canada. And they were using PTT satellite platform type satellite transmitters on the peregrines and uh, tracking their migration routes. And so I adapted what they were doing with these very large, bulky transmitters to making a leather um, backpack and uh, using Teflon ribbon that they got from a company called Bally Ribbons in the States. It's very expensive, by the way. But um, I would make a leather backpack and I put it on my Joe Peregrine at the time and uh, he was three. And he took to it, and I had success for several years. So anyway, I introduced this idea to the manufacturer, the telemetry manufacturer, and I became friends with uh, the owner and, and several of its employees. And then one day, out of the blue, it was January, I remember it, uh, I get an email, and uh, he says, you know people all around the world, he says, um, who do you know that would be able to represent our company in the Middle East? And I'm thinking, well, you know, that's really, that's a tall order. I, I, I think it'll have to be a single guy because most wise wouldn't want to go. Um, I'm thinking, well, I know a guy in Germany and I know one in South Africa that might be interested. I'll uh, get in touch with them and let you know. Yeah, and I do. And both of them said, no way. And so I got back to my friend and said, I'm sorry, nobody wants to do this. I said, too bad. Another time, another life. I would have jumped at it. And he came right back at me, and I was to find out later on that he was, it was his original intent. But he said, what can we do to make it this time and this life? And I went, Pff. it'd be like someone saying, hey, can you let me in half a million dollars, you know? And I, yeah, whatever. You know, I've emigrated to Canada for the falconry, specifically for the falconry. I've moved around various provinces. I found my falconry nirvana. Um, I'm happy as a pig in crap you know what i mean just enjoying <laughs> yeah. my falconry why the heck would i ever want to leave this mm -hmm. and he says no and then of course he he presented a package and 
I sent this, I showed this email to my wife and uh, that's the litmus test. And I said, uh, read this, what do you think? She was preparing supper. Like I said, it was January and January in Alberta is freaking cold. It's probably 25 below or something. She looked at that and she said, she paused and she looked at me and she says, hell yeah. She says, I'm, I'm mentally packed, let's do it. And I'm like, my hands up in the air, whoa, 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 slow down a second. You know, well, I got two dogs. I got, you know, we got this beautiful uh, acreage with several acres, our cars, my quad, my trailers, all sorts of toys and, and all our gear and all our belongings. And I said, uh, I said, what are we going to do with this? And she wouldn't, wouldn't want to rent her house out. So she said, no, we'll go. And the initial offer was only a two-year contract. And when I look back, I think I was nuts to sell everything up and sell my house and quit my very good job. And she has an excellent job as an occupational therapist and moved to the other side of the world to a country that doesn't speak English. And, um, and yet we did it. And, and if there's any lesson I would tell others about that and, and, and anything in life is sometimes opportunities are going to come by and you need to seize them. You know, they may not come a second time and you certainly, and, and this is one of the things that drove me in throughout my life, um, is you, you, we only get one, one go at this thing called life and it is incredibly short. And I never wanted to be the person that would be saying to friends in a pub or bar that, oh yeah, I had an opportunity to do this and I didn't, I wish I did it, you know what I mean? And um, I, 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 I look to my parents, God bless their souls, who died very young, my father at 40 and my mother at 54. And I, I look at them who worked incredibly hard in their lives and never got to enjoy it. And at a very young age, certainly when they died, um, I think I was 18 when my mother died, the second parent to pass, um, I thought, you know what? Life isn't a destination. It's definitely a journey, and I've got to enjoy it. And so when this opportunity came up, and fortunately I had a spouse that was very, very supportive, the next thing we know, we sell everything up, every belongings we had, with exception to maybe some paintings and falconry books and some, you know, knickknacks, everything else we sold. And when we did that, it was certainly nerve-wracking at first because all the junk that you accumulate over the course of your life was suddenly being sold off in, you know, buy and sell stuff for a fraction of what they're worth. And yeah, after a while, it became quite Catholic. You know, you were releasing yourself from all this clutter. And I was 50, whatever I was, 50 something years old. And I felt like a teenager again with a backpack who could just get on a bus and go. <laughs> so we show up in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. And, um, and, I was the boots on the ground. This company had been selling in that, that region for 15 years prior to my arrival. They'd sold through distributors. And uh, I showed up in Dubai, and my job was to set up uh, eventually two sales and service centers for radio telemetry. They had like a 98% market share in that region, which was phenomenal. And it represented over 85%, I think, of their, their global business. And, but I was the first boots on the ground, and uh, it was quite an experience. I had to get a, uh, a place to live, find a place to rent. 
I had to get a company car and then a decal stuck on it. And they'd send me a shirt with the company's name on it. But um, I remember driving around with this four by four and uh, just looking for people. I when I think back, I was like a vacuum salesman, you know what I mean, door to door, except my job was driving through and I'd look around the desert. I see a guy which inevitably to me, I could recognize was flying falcons. And one of the first people I bumped into by sheer luck, I drive up across the desert to them and um, they look at me and like to say, what's this guy want? You know, I'm a, a gray haired white guy that drives up and they're like, Salam Alaikum, which is, you know, uh, I say to them, uh, which is like, I come in peace. It's the, 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 the it's, a, it's an Arab version of hello, but you say Salam Alaikum and it means I come in peace. And they go Alaikum Salam, which is, you know, peace be with you. And you, you do the introduction. And I didn't know the language at the time. I, I picked it up a bit. Um, and he introduced me. He says, oh, you need to go to the other side. And about 400 yards away was another big, massive camper trailer that was air conditioned. And in the one I drove up to and the other one were dozens of falcons in air conditioned building. And they were calling them across a long distance on a lure, training them for fitness. And so I met the boss and the boss happened to work for the crown prince of Dubai. And then next thing I know, I'm invited to them for dinner. And then other people at the, the dinner say, hey, you must come to my place. And, and I was invited to dinner somewhere else two days later. And, and it became the network. And that's how I did it. And uh, several months later, the, the first sales and distribution center was finally finished and constructed in Dubai in the Falcon suit in Nadal Sheba. Uh, sorry, no, actually, the first one was in Abu Dhabi. And then several months later was in uh, Dubai. And, um, and I just kept going from one customer to another and uh, the word got out. And uh, I guess you become a bit of a celebrity because you're recognized by a household brand there, so to speak. You know, it'd be like saying I represent Rolls Royce or Ferrari. Um, and there began an incredible experience and roller coaster experience i got to see and do things that were well i don't know they were literally unbelievable i could just recite many stories and we don't have time for it now but i became good friends with uh the brother-in-law the ruler of dubai and we still communicate today three years after i left but um i was invited to kazakhstan hunting azerbaijan several times hunting uh flying on private jets and uh it was just an unbelievable falconry experience unbelievable and uh it was very good for the manufacturer i represented the first year i put on a 65 percent increase in sales and um and, and it just there was new products being uh, invented basically um that frankly weren't really seen by the western world uh, very high-end products, and uh, a lot of it was field-tested in the Middle East. And, yeah, it was a, just an amazing experience with hundreds of stories. It sounds absolutely incredible, and it's amazing. Like you said, you just never know when opportunities are going to come up. And 
a simple drive through the desert and just, you know, having the, uh, I don't know, <laughs> for lack of better terms, the testicular fortitude to to make the the jump and just the attempt to try and do that. It, it's amazing how just, you know, it's not a small decision, but, you know, just a, a couple of small decisions leads to such an incredible experience. It really is. Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, and, and from there, I got to go to Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, um, which is the GCC, the Gulf Cooperative Countries, um, and to visit other falconers there and customers and work with our, our distributors and so on and raise the, the general knowledge and understanding of radio telemetry. And within the, the country, you know, the United Arab Emirates, um, I became unintentionally a, a source or go-to for somebody to help them find their falcon. I'd get a call from a sheikh and he'd say, you know, Mr. Mark, I've lost my falcon. I need your help. I blah, blah, blah. And, and I just go. And I would be there and I would help them find their falcon. And uh, it was a service that you offered. And it was one of the things that cemented uh, certainly the company I represented. Their, their relationship with uh, their customer base, and particularly their VIP and royal family members. Um, but they are incredibly hospitable people. They, they put the Westerners to shame um, in, in terms of the hospitality that they show you. And like I described earlier, when I was invited to, you know, go to a meal at somebody's majlis and so on, this became, it just, it just went viral. And within the first three or four months, I put on 20 pounds because <laughs> I would try and get, I would try and get two or three appointments in a day. You know, I'm trying to go on the Western mentality and work ethic. And every time you go, they got to feed you. They'd be <laughs> insulted if you didn't eat. Mm -hmm. And of course, go back to my days as a, a child and my upbringing. My parents always made sure you ate what was on your, your plate. You, know, you don't waste food. <laughs> so if I finish that plate, the next thing they know, they oh, he's hungry. He still wants more food. So they would put more on. Mm -hmm. And so I had this moral dilemma of having to leave food just because if I eat it, they're going to put more on there. And uh, so I ballooned a bit. At least that's my excuse. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, it was an incredible experience. Incredible incredible experience i i can recall instances where i'm sitting in the desert with bedouin who are like you know the original kind of uh, arab uh, nomads and sitting around a fire trying to get by telling stories with broken you know with language barriers and um and their limited knowledge of, of english and usually the younger ones had some Western education so they could speak. But just sitting there, I could have been there, it could have been 300, 400 years ago. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, and we would we would cook the food we caught with our falcons, the hubar or the kirawan, which are, a, the kirawan is a, it's a stone curlew, the European stone curlew. And those are the two main prey species in the Middle East as well as the desert hair, which is much rarer and harder to find now. Hmm. But uh, anyway, a fantastic experience. Sounds like it. And you were over there, what, like eight years or something like that? Is that what you seven said? Seven years, actually. Seven years? It was seven? originally for two. And after seven years, I decided, you know what? I'm not getting any younger. 
And although I did hunt, I had my own falcons, and I did hunt particularly with one particular sheikh who took me everywhere to hunt with him. And he was a good customer, introduced me to good customers. But um, I decided, you know what? The last 20 years of my hunting career, like in, in Canada, they went by in flash. And then I started looking ahead and doing a reality check of, of where I am now. And I'm thinking, you know what? I want to go back to my hunting. I miss it. And, um, and so I, I, I gave my resignation. I gave them at least six months to try and find a replacement. And uh, I resigned, I remember, in September with a view to leaving in April. And then in, was it January or so, February, COVID struck. And all of a sudden in March, it's like Canada, the last plane going into Canada is now. If you don't get on it, you hoot. And so we left a month or so earlier, but it worked out well with my employer because that's about the end of their season, their business season anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, the season generally started August through till March, April. And then in the summer, it's 50 degrees, nobody's hawking. The customers go off to their house in UK or Germany or Switzerland and focus on horse racing or whatever else they, they have their interests in. So it worked out well. And then I showed back up in, in Canada and uh, I decided to retire. And now what I do is try to make up for lost time. <laughs> well, I mean, for what it's worth, it doesn't sound like you really lost a whole lot of time. <laughs> not a lot, not a lot, but it, it's, it's a different style of hunting over there, of course. Um, and I began to appreciate, I learned many things from the Arab falconers for sure. Um, I think some of the biggest things I take away from what they did, even though their style of falconry was quite different to mine, we tend to sort of aim for the high waiting on flights and, uh, they're out of the hood pursuit hawking. Um, and, and one thing I would say that travel tends to, with travel comes understanding, um, appreciation and understanding different cultures, languages, customs, uh, you, you get a better understanding than if you were just in your own little small zip code. Um, you, you know, just because they do something different to you doesn't make it wrong. Um, and I learned a great deal of things. And one of them was fitness. Uh, I used to think my birds were fit. I hunt from mid August through till probably the end of February, generally, even though we can go to the end of March, generally by, by, by the end of February, partridge tend to pair up. And that's when the sign to me to stop hunting, because I don't want to break up a potential breeding pair, mm -hmm. but that's several months. That's five, six months of hunting. And uh, I thought my birds were pretty fit. But when I went to the Middle East, my goodness, I tell you, we, we limit ourselves in, in the West, generally speaking, I'm saying there are obviously some exceptions, but we tend to limit ourselves. All we want our bird to do is to take off, go up, if you're lucky, five, 600, maybe 1,000 feet or more. And then uh, they're circling above, and then you, you know, they, they know the deal. They know where the dog is, the fun happens, and you flush the partridge or the grouse, and they come down and they hit it, and usually it's game over. But the, 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 the Arab style of pursuit hawking, and bearing in mind they have the terrain to do this, 
even where I live in, in open Canada, I've got rivers, I've got some fences and, and stuff to, and landowner issues that I've got to work with. Um, but if they would let a falcon out of the hood, and this hubara or even a, some other species could be, you know, two, three hundred feet or so up in the sky, and they would uh, they would try and race under it with their their um, SUV, and the falcon was trained to do this. They'd get underneath this falcon doing maybe seventy clicks, and then under the sorry the hubara, and then they would put the falcon out the window they'd unhood it in the cab of the truck they 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 put their arm out the window and the falcon shoots up into the sky and knows the drill and starts climbing like a rocket several hundred feet up into the sky and to to watch a falcon go from virtually a standing start shoot up climb to a thousand feet chasing even a pigeon which is used for training chasing a pigeon for several kilometers. And I'm talking like, you're not talking circumgliding, flat, flat, glide. We're talking intense, ting, 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 ting. You're just going after this pigeon, chasing it down out of the sky, nine, 12 kilometers away. It's like, holy crap, I've never seen that stuff. It's just mind blowing. And the Arabs were very innovative in, in their, their ways of fitness training. And I think they were, one of the first to do the drones and the and the RC planes, and of course they they used the balloon early early days, maybe in the 2012 or so. But um, yeah, they were a super fit. And the other thing is they're very very well manned. Um, they they live with them in their majulis. Their majulis is like your man cave. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know the bird will be in there with them or birds, and um, and they they would sometimes ride on the center console of your truck, unhooded, and they'd be looking, and they're driving these vast open sort of planes, say in Kazakhstan, with the occasional sparse shrubs, and uh, the Falcon would see the Hubara, you know, six hundred kilometers, uh, six hundred meters away, and. Uh, you know, the, the, the saker or whatever it is, his head would clock up and it'd be like a goshawk in Yarrick. And they're like, oh, 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 he's seen something. And they're driving that direction. They pick up the falcon off the center console and they're ready. And then the hubara flashes in front of them, maybe three, 400 yards. And out goes the falcon. And we chase them. It's, it's incredible. Sounds like it. Yeah, it's it would be. Yeah, completely unimaginable to be able to do something like that anywhere here. <laughs> I mean, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you'd end up. Yeah, yeah, you you'd be uh, in a fiery crash pretty quick. Yeah, anywhere, <laughs> pretty much to put it lightly, you know. But uh, but no, that's. Well, I, I, I should just add. Sorry to interrupt you there. But no, no, you're good. That that's one thing that that unfortunately does happen. And I know one or two people that have unfortunately been <laughs> paralyzed because of it. But they are racing, chasing their falcon, and they're looking up at the sky through the top of the windshield, and they don't see a ditch or a hole or something. And when a truck hits that doing, you know, 100K, it's, it's uh, catastrophic. Out. Yeah. yeah, it is It is not good. And um, 
I've been in those vehicles when those are guy those guys are doing it, and uh, I, I remember telling my boss at the time, I you know, I'm videoing the, the vehicle, videoing what we're doing, videoing the uh, speedometer, and sent him an email saying, "I need danger pay for this job <laughs> because I'm with a client in their vehicle, and we're going like 100, 120 k across this what looks like to be a flat terrain, but suddenly you just hit a bump or a hump or a rock. It's not fun." <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I can only imagine. I can only imagine the, uh, you know, <laughs> the oh, you know what moments that yeah, you probably exactly. had. There's a few. Yeah. There's a few of them. In fact, yeah. unfortunately, while I was out there, I did actually break my back doing this. Um, and 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 to be fair, that the, the customer I was with, we were demonstrating the the GPS system at the time. He, I had his phone in my hand because a lot of these guys are doing this while they're looking at their phone. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had his phone in my hand, and I was reanalyzing the flight of his Falcon. And the next thing I know, I hit the ceiling of this truck. My truck, my company vehicle, was only several hundred yards away. We were driving back to it, having reclaimed his Falcon. Mm-hmm. And uh, the next thing I know, I hit the, ro- the, 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 the roof of the vehicle of his Land Cruiser. Then I hit in the foot in the footwell of the Land Cruiser. Then I hit the roof again. And then I hit the footwell, <laughs> and it's like. What just happened? And I was in excruciating pain. And I got out of the truck. I remember I stumbled out of the truck. And we basically drove because it was late in the afternoon. There was like a the light. We sometimes see it here in Canada in winter when the, the sky is the same color as the snow on the ground. And you, you, there's no context. There's no texture to anything. You, you just you can't tell the ground from the sky. And this was the case on this particular fateful afternoon. The sunset was setting, and uh, the sky, the air had this kind of dusty texture to it. And the next thing we know, and he's driving, he's not distracted, but he drives off like a six or eight foot wall of, well, for want of a better description, sandstone. And the vehicle literally just gets air. And I didn't have a seatbelt on because, you know, in the middle of a sand dunes and desert, you first of all, we weren't doing 110k, we were doing 40k maybe. But you don't expect to see, you know, a high speed camel running by or any vehicles. <laughs> so I didn't have my belt on, my my bat, and nor did he, but he was holding the steering wheel. And unfortunately, I broke my back, I fractured it in three places. He took me to the hospital, and um, and I remember they said, Yeah, you, you need to have x rays and so on. And they said, Yeah, you've broken your back and uh, you've got compression fractures. So I'm like, oh my goodness, what am I gonna do here? And my wife was in Canada at the time, uh, receiving medical treatment. So I was living alone. And uh, the customer dropped me off at my house and his friend followed behind in my company car, parked it in the driveway of the house. And I remember lying on my bed, looking up. I could I could barely move, you know, with a broken back. and. Uh, I, fortunately, I didn't affect the, the, the spinal column. My, my nerves were fine, but it was incredibly painful. And I remember lying on my back thinking, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do? And, uh, you know, just to get up and go take a pee was a big deal. <laughs> now, all of a sudden, how was I going to eat? How was I going to go up and down the stairs? How was I going to do laundry? All the stuff that, you know, people do and you take for granted. I'm suddenly, I'm in a mess. I'm in a problem. And 
you know what amazed me, and this speaks to the the generosity, kindness, and hospitality of the people there. Um, I contacted a friend and said, "Look, you know, Mohammed, I'm in a bit of a problem here. I've broken my back, and I, I'm, I'm in a bind." Um, and uh, I had within within a couple of hours, I had phone calls coming to me, and these were from customers. I might add, one of them was the brother-in-law of the ruler of Dubai, and um, one of them offered me to. He would. Ha- he was on a yacht somewhere in the, in the ocean, but he phoned his manager, and he owned a chain of hotels. And he says, "My my my staff will come and pick you up. You can come and stay at our hotel. You can recover. Everything will be taken care of you." And uh, another, the sheikh phones me and says, "Mark, he says I'm so sorry to hear what happened." He says. Uh, Listen, don't get the, don't have any treatment done in, in the UAE. I will send you to Germany. We'll get it done and everything will be good. You know, and uh, he says, I'll cover all the costs. And I'm like, you know, these are customers and they were so good, so kind and generous to me. And fortunately, as things worked out, my sister, who, two sisters, I have three sisters, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm getting old. Um, Three sisters live in the UK, and one of them flew out and uh, kind of took care of me for a few weeks. Um, But, yeah, that speaks to uh, the the hazards of driving and falconry and, of course, to the generosity and kindness of the people there. Um, But, uh, and and a fortunate, an experience I can look back on with some, uh, good fortune, you know, but it could have equally been as, you know, a life-changing experience too. Oh yeah. Yeah. It could have been absolutely disastrous goes without saying, you know, and, and, uh, no, that's, that's once again, it's another thing that sounds incredible. And, um, yeah, eventually I, I, I hope to be able to, to see what that area is all about. And, you know, I mean, I, I will say I can double your sentiments about, a lot of these different countries, I, I know there's always perceptions and a lot of different, um, I don't know, kind of preconceived notions when it comes to how we're like, different countries treat each other. And one thing that I've mentioned several times to, to people that I know as well as on the podcast is I've, I've always been extremely grateful and um, extremely appreciative of, of the hospitality that I know personally that I've received in other countries that I've been to and especially from the falconry community. And I, I, you know, I wouldn't expect it to be any different there either, you know? So I'm, I'm happy to hear that that was that, that way for you. I think, uh, absolutely the world over, wherever I've been, whichever country across Europe, uh, the middle East, um, UK, of course, even the States, the, the brotherhood of falconry, uh, I say the brotherhood, the brother and sisterhood of falconry um, is such that um, my door is always open to another falconer, and many people have come and visited me um, over the years. And even when I lived in the Middle East, you know, Western falconers would come and visit with me and stay, and or I'd show them around and introduce them to to the Arabian falconry that they would never see as a tourist. Um, but, you know, you pay it forward because somebody at some point in your past has done the same to you and uh, you just pay it forward. 
Exactly. Exactly. And and um, yeah, so far, I'm, I'm like I said, I've, I've been happy to to see it all kind of come back around in a positive way. And and um, yeah, I mean, I'm like I said, I'm glad that you had the, those experiences and that they all worked out for the best for you. It's that's awesome. But I um, I know that you've already told so many neat stories, but I, I definitely do want to get like one of your personal favorite hunting stories about you know either a particular event or a particular bird that you had and um you know kind of go from there and uh before we you know wrap things up and stuff so go ahead and if you can think of i know with all these different experiences you've had it's going to be hard but give it a shot well okay that is a tough one because uh you know i've been in this game for probably 45 years and you kind of try and think of a particularly exceptional bird or whatever. Um, uh, it's hard to do. I mean, I, I've had several, several, many good birds, um, some exceptional ones, believe it or not. A Tirsalanatum that I had, only 585 grain, grain, grams, I should say, but um, this was from the four-week window that Lynn Oliphant had. Uh, it was about the time when he was starting to do this four-week window uh, training program, which basically capitalizes on the natural progression of a falcon's development when it, you know, is at the iris, so to speak. And uh, this hack falcon, I flew, and uh, I got it off him when it was flying with his brother in the early stages, and. Uh, I bought him on impulse, and I'll be honest, I, uh, he was stunning to look at. Nice black cap on autumn. And uh, this bird was phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. He killed sharp tails. I remember at the Canadian meet, he killed like six sharp tails at the meet, which was incredible for a tissel, an autumn pair of him. Uh, mallets, you know, uh, partridge, he was an incredible game hawk, and uh, that's one. But... Um, if I think of some of, of interest or, or an experience of interest, funny enough, it's there is many, but one that, that comes to mind was actually to do with telemetry. Um, and it was about a, a recovery situation. And um, so I, I take you back once again to the Middle East for a moment. And I was hunting with this sheikh and uh, one of his birds, a, a jail falcon male, took off after a kirawan. They were hunting on the shores of the uh, of the ocean, the Arabian Gulf or Persian Gulf, depending on which side of it you're standing. Um, and it took off, and uh, they called his staff called the sheikh. The sheikh was I was with him riding in his uh, Land Cruiser, and he says, "We have a lost falcon. We need your help with." So we pull up at the dock on this key harbor. And uh, they were using, back in those days, uh, 216. And uh, it wasn't GPS. With GPS, you know exactly where it is, whether it's sitting, flying, whatever. But with the, with the traditional beeping, um, it, I'm pointing this receiver, and I'm getting confirmation. It's out to sea. And I'm like, well, this doesn't look good, because when a falcon gets out over the ocean, depending on the situation, but a lot of them, they go in the ocean. And if they're in the ocean, then you're hooped. And, and the, the, the signal, for that matter, is going to be greatly reduced because, you know, in the water, the signal is not able to transmit through the air as easy. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so we, the sheikh summons 
one of his staff to bring his speedboat and he rocks up in this three outboards they were all like johnson what uh, 150s and he shows up in this speedboat and we just go in a straight line out to the ocean for 20 kilometers and in the distance there's an oil rig an oil rig being pulled by two tugboats and i'm like the condensed version of it is the falcon sitting on the oil rig uh -huh. now we're circumventing or going around and circling you know like pirates you know um <laughs> this oil rig in the ocean and we're trying to gesticulate and wave to the tugboat guy to stop towing an oil rig so we can get on it and try and recover the falcon and this comes back to that old adage of you know it's not what you know it's who you know so the tugboat of course wasn't going to do anything so the sheikh phones the coast guard now the sheikh can do that because he's the sheikh so the coast guard come out and they contact the tugboat the tugboat slows down and they allow me to get on this oil rig and i get on this platform which was not easy from a bobbing speedboat i get on this platform when we recover the falcon we get back on and we by the time we pull up into the dock it's fallen dark you know what i mean but i think of myself that wouldn't happen in north america or even europe i mean that's a lost bird you uh -huh. know what i mean oh yeah but yeah that's a memorable experience and i i could tell you many but those are a couple i can think of yeah, no, that's like I said, I we could probably go for three or four hours or even more, you know, with all the different stuff that you have to have, you know, in that in that mind of yours, as far as just all these different things. I mean, yeah, I mean, like I said, it sounds like you've lived several people's lifetimes in one person's. And you know, like I said, a lot of people go their whole lives without getting a chance to experience different cultures and different different things and you know like i said I, it sounds like you know you've been very fortunate in a lot of ways well i have you're right jonathan and, and the only thing i would say is is that i'm sure i'm not the only person that opportunities come to the the key is you got to seize them you got to take risks and i have taken a lot of risks i've emigrated twice um and um and and you know use your common sense and so on but um if anything, I would encourage others to to seize the moments and and, and do it, you know, providing it's legal. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. You know, just do it. Just do it, as uh, Nike says. Perfect. Well, I mean, that sounds like uh, a, a really good answer then to, to one of the other questions I usually, you know, end on as far as, you know, a good piece of advice. And, and I think... Um, yeah, we can probably come close to go ahead and, and wrapping this up. But real quick, I did want to ask you one more thing, too. I mean, I know you've served as far as, you know, our different, um, you know, just like NAFA and, and some of the different organizations for falconry. I know you've you've helped out, you know, serving on positions as far as those different experiences. I mean, what what kind of. I mean, what's your takeaway been as far as, you know, dealing with some of these different i don't know like organizations and you know i know a lot of people you know the members and stuff you know don't often get an idea of what it's like all the work that kind of goes on behind the scenes 
and doing a lot of things to, you know, advocate for for falconers and different things like that. Well, what, what's what's your experience been with with dealing, you know, and serving for for NAFA and the Falconry Fund and, and things like that? Well, um, I I was NAFA director for Canada for eight years and the IAF delegate for Canada for those eight years. And um, when I came back to the Gulf, uh, the past and current NAFA presidents asked if I would go back to be NAFA director again. But um, I did get arm twisted into being a trustee for the Faltry Fund. Um, but, you know, what I would say, I, I'm, I'm a, a huge advocate of NAFA. You know, I've been a member since 1991. Um, <sighs> You know, I will say, first of all, and I'll perhaps use this um, pedestal as a, as a way to privately and publicly thank um, NAFA board members, uh, volunteer members, uh, officers of the organization, um, for all the thankless hours that they put into ensuring that our future as Falconers continues. Um, there's the old sort of 80-20 adage that, you know, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Well, I would say in the case of falconry, it's probably 5% of the people do, you know, 95% uh, of the work. It's, you know, there's so many talented, wonderful people that I've been honored to, to work with um, and where best I can represent in the falconry community and i would encourage wherever you live whether it's in north america or indeed in the west uh, or any other country in uh, in the world where regular regulated falconry is is support your local club um organizations such as nafa has done so much and they don't sing about everything they've done but um individual members uh, presidents, officers, as I've said, they put in a huge amount of time and effort. And um, the least you can do is pay the subscription, the annual subscription. You know, I, I can't remember now could I buy several years in advance, but I think the, the NAFA memberships off the top of my head, 60 bucks. You know, that's less than I can spend on a day hawking in fuel. Mm -hmm. And what I get for my 60 bucks as a member of NAFA is phenomenal. I mean, the publications alone are world-class and worth, you know, uh, the cost of entry. It, it's, 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 and yet your, your funds and your, your contribution and your support helps secure the future of our sport. And I'm sure the same applies in wherever country you live in. Um, try and give a little bit back to the sport that gives us so much. That's all I would encourage you to do. It's different for each of us, but just try and give a little bit back. And, you know, when you see your uh, hope short editor ask for, for, for articles, try and contribute. And I'm guilty of that. I need to do it more. Um, but, um, you know, Pay it forward. That's all I can say. Help a newcomer into the sport. Um, meet other falconers. And for those newcomers that are in the sport, I would definitely encourage you to meet other falconers. And you can do that by going to things like NAFA meets 
Um, because even your sponsor, as good as he or she is, they have it from their perspective. And it's really good when you can get it from, from multitudes of people with years and years of lifetimes of experience um, because you get a much broader understanding. And, um, and so back to your question, I would say support organizations like NAFA. The Falkery Fund is, is, is an offshoot of NAFA. It's basically, if you want to look at it, and I'm probably wrong in quoting it this way, but it's like the financial arm of NAFA. Uh, it's a registered 5013C uh, charitable organization. And um, this was set up by NAFA because there were, there were falconers, members of, of NAFA, and just general falconers who wanted to give a little bit back to, their, uh, to the sport that had given them so much over their life. And they saw organizations such as NAFA as uh, an ideal um, opportunity to to you know a recipient of, of their gift and so you know if they give an end of life gift whether it's you know a hundred dollars or a hundred thousand dollars they receive a taxable benefit a tax credit if you're an american citizen at least um but those funds are going to be used towards falconry related conservation education um, worthwhile causes and um, and so you know try and support that try and as I said it again try and pay it forward yeah and as far as I mean would you say that I know your personal experiences in, in having these kind of positions I mean have they been invaluable to you in in some ways as far as making any new relationships or, or friends i mean oh, personally for i mean for sure for sure um they do and um you know as an if delegate you get to travel to different countries and you get a certain coverage of your expenses but it's nothing near what it's going to cost you mm -hmm. but um you get to meet falcons from all around the world uh but even with nafa and um you know I think of the NAFA meets, it's like going and visiting family and an extended family. You meet people, you may only ever meet them at NAFA meets, but it's just like you pick up where you left off. And um, one of the reasons I got tender a uh, falconry meet is not because I want to fly my falcon there. I could do that way better where I am. Um, but it's watching other people fly their birds and uh, interacting with them after the day's hawking and so on. Uh, this kinship, this friendship, uh, for me, that's what it's all about. Sure. Yeah. And like I said, it's without that, there would be a lot of people, I think, myself included, that would, you know, find um, a lot of things wanting, you know, with, with falconry in general. I know it's it's hard to imagine doing it without a lot of the friendships, for sure. For sure. The camaraderie is is, is what it's it's all about. And you help each other. You know, and I, I refer back to Dale Gathorson. I mean, to this day, I'll sometimes call him and I'll say, Dale, I, I'm experiencing this. This is what I'm doing. This is the result I'm getting. I, I, I was thinking of doing this. What do you think? And uh, just as sometimes I know the answer, but as a sounding board, it's always good to hear it from someone else's perspective. For sure. Um, and, and I will just add in closing on that, don't think that you will only learn from those that have been in it for a long time. 
you know, I've sponsored, you know, apprentices uh, over the years, and I remember learning a very valuable lesson from a, a, an apprentice I had that, that was flying a Merlin. And he said, oh, I want to go catch pigeons with it. And I, oh, that's going to be a tough order. And I'll be damned. You know what? He went and did it. Off the <laughs> fist, chased down pigeons with his Merlin. And wild pigeons. I mean, they're barn pigeons. But I thought, well, who said you can't do it? You know, who am I to say you can't do it? <laughs> um, and uh, he taught me one or two things, you know. And... Um, and so everybody has something to offer, not just the old guys, the old the old guard. I think you know every every novice has a fresh perspective and new eyes, and um, you know we're always learning. And I think falconry is all about learning, for sure. Yeah, and you never know what people's experiences are until you know you you see them for yourself, or you know, especially some of the most most uh, some of the most memorable experiences that that I've had are. You know, just discovering what what people are are all about in the field, and you know, seeing some really cool stuff that you didn't think was possible before you saw it too. You know, so, but yeah, no, I, I think um, that's probably a, a good note to end on. Um, I mean, we've covered so much stuff, and time's kind of flown by here. But I mean, is there anything else that you want to end on? I mean, is there anything that the fund or any anybody's doing right now that you want to that bears mentioning, or is there any other shout outs you want to give or anything before we end this? Or I think the only thing I want to I want to leave my fellow falconers uh, with is that um, you know. We carry a huge responsibility to um, to ensure the future of our sport, and we do that in our actions every day. So all I would encourage people to think about, um, says he who was chasing blackbirds in a cemetery, you know, with a sparrow hawk, um, is think about what you do and, 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 and just make sure that you can um, – Hold your head up high. Don't do things that would would, would perhaps um, look bad against you, but more importantly, against the sport of falconry itself. And in this day and age of social media and so on, we have to be careful about that and who your audience is and and what they see and what they don't see. Um, but um, that's the only thing I would I would perhaps leave people with um, is. Um, be an ambassador for the sport. Gotcha. Well, perfect. Well, thanks again for all your time today. And like, I'm, I'm I really hope there's going to be a part two or even three um, with, with this at some point, it sounds like there's just so many other amazing things that you could possibly share. And, you know, I'd like to, I mean, there's so many people I'd love to do follow up episodes with. And unfortunately there's, there's not enough time in the day sometimes, but hopefully we get a chance to do this again sometime. Well, thank you, Jonathan. In the meantime, uh, if you want to meet me at a bar or an affamite or something, you know, I'm sure I'll share a few stories over beer. Oh, well, that's perfect because I like beer. <laughs> right. But, uh, but uh, yeah, like I said, thanks again for your time. And go ahead and stay on here real quick. We'll uh, end this shortly. But um, like I said, thanks for your time, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you very much. <laughs>